0: Right now Take out your copy of No Jacket Required by Phil Collins Take out your copy Go ahead Take it off your record shelf If you're driving, I'm sure it's taped to your headrest Out of your passenger seat so you can use the carpool lane Just take a look at him now He's just a big orange face <laughs> And the face is angled in such a way And the expression on his face seems to say Hey, try to get inside my head I dare you it's a close shot we're practically inside his skull, but we want to accept the implied invitation. Phil Collins, today, we're going to get inside your head. We love to break Phil Collins down track by track, but I think most can... I think... I think most can be told about someone by the first words out of someone's mouth, blabbered without thinking. So today, we're going to figure out Phil Collins by counting down the first track off No Jacket Required, the blabbered nonsense word that is a look into Phil Collins' soul, whether he likes it or not. Welcome to Beyond Yacht Rock, Susudio! This is the Beyond Yacht Rock Podcast. My name is J.D. Riznar. Hello, I'm Hollywood Steve. Hey, I'm David Lance. Hey, it's Hunter. Hey, listen. It's episode 65. We're going wild in the fire. Wild in the fire. And like we did so long ago, was it episode 15? was episode 15. 15 we did that? We When we took the song Oh Sherry and counted it down from 10 to 1, mm-hmm. looking deep into that song, we did deep that? into Steve Perry. Yeah. It was wow. a long time ago. Greatest song ever written. Um, we're going to do the same thing today with the Phil Collins songs of studio We're going to have a lot of fun, we're going to learn a lot about the song, a lot about Phil Yeah A lot of, a lot of speculation in armchair psychiatry
1: <laughs> Yeah That means we can prescribe drugs from our armchairs
0: <laughs> uh, But because we invented the term Yacht Rock, and we know you guys love Yacht Rock We like to throw a bone to the Yacht Rock genre every week So Hunter, what are we listening to here today?
2: So before we get into this, uh, Susudio thing, uh, I promise I'll bring this back, back around, but this is Lee Rittenauer with the jaunty little tune, Sunset Drivers, uh, from his 1984 album, Banded Together, uh, an album he's definitely tipping, uh, more towards an electronic mid-80s sound, heading very much towards Miami Beach to hang out with Crockett and Tubbs, but here he does, uh, just enough to stay on that 80s boat, um, And to be honest, it's mostly Lee Rittenhauer's Captain Finger's smooth-ass jazz guitar, which you just heard there,
0: that keeps him on the boat. Yeah, that was great. That's a great guitar. But the the lyrics are great, too. The first line of the song is, West Coast sundown, sundown's on this million-dollar playground. That's a shitty version of a Steely (laughs) Dan-esque yacht rock lyric that evokes a West Coast genre, uh, which is basically yacht rock. So yeah, this is a nice, interesting yacht rock song. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, things to note: Listen to that Joe Jackson stepping out synth rhythm line. Can you hear that? Absolutely. So uh, DJs, you can uh, you can mix these two songs together when you're on your
3: Joe Jackson Lee Rittenour hour. <laughs> uh, Just back and out, forth. You know, Rittenour hour would be a great radio show. uh, 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 and, uh for so, a day, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once, maybe for about fifteen minutes.
2: Uh, <laughs> Also, listen to Eric Tagg. He's the Robin to Lee's Batman. His vocals go from Bobby Caldwell to the O Glenn Fry on this, which is fun. And there's a musical nod to Fast Cars. Listen to that. Do you just know that the yacht is not long for the world at
3: this point? Now, Hunter, you and I have talked about Eric Tagg before. Yes. But we've never played him on the show, have we? No, he's, well, not his solo stuff just right.
2: his combination with Lee Now nice. I've constantly tagged you bro and, you, yeah. and but you refused to play
0: it we might have gotten an Eric Tag solo thing in here I don't think uh, we did because I've been I, pushing it on him I've I been tagging Dave like, yeah and I've no, got a it, few it, I've it, got it, a few tags in my bone fight might have been a yon and yonder, but listen to this guitar solo it's obviously an awesome yacht rock guitar solo because Lee our, our yeah. he's a guitar god and the one here sounds like it could be from any late 70s Steely Dan album, which makes sense because Lee Rittenauer plays guitar with Larry Carlton on Deacon Blues. So this song really is uh, quite like the Dan. This is like Dan Light, it's like Dan for idiots.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you broke the, broke the seal on name and names. Really
0: uh, really dumbing
3: down the dam. Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm going to name some more uh, names. You hear that? Or you just heard that lady? That was Patty Austin. Oh, she's, she's on the boat. She's on the course. Uh, Greg Matheson on Keys and Synth. He was uh, Abe Laborial's buddy. His name has come up a few times this year. Uh, he may be at
3: New York, if that's a thing. Uh, of course, we have Paulina DaCosta on percussion because there because, is percussion. Because per- there's percussion, and that means it's probably both. Costa. yeah and, and it's very important um also the the hottest quality quartet of horn
2: dogs you can find with Gary Grant Gary Herbig Jerry Hay and, and Larry Williams that's right it's Gary Gary Jerry and Larry of the horns <laughs> man I love
4: Newhart Heart. <laughs>
2: uh, so why uh why pick this seemingly random Captain Finger song besides love uh, his and tags uh, yacht output uh one might say so yacht put yeah. uh, Maybe uh, I found I found forced. <laughs> I found this because uh, Phil Collins has played played with one legit yacht rock dude, and it's not Easy Lover and uh, Philip Bailey. Uh, that was uh, barely on the boat. Well, it, was, it was. I don't know. It was up. It was uh, slightly <laughs> up there. But it was. It was a. That was like a double toe dip. Uh, although you can
3: argue uh, Bailey's uh, Mer record stuff is yeah, You were so close to a proper pronunciation that time. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, uh,
2: so, no, the one solid yachtsman Phil play with, played with was Lee Ritenour, And it's the next song on this album, and it's yacht, And it fully solidifies Lee's exit from the boat and into that drug-running Ferrari. Uh, it's, it's a song called Mandela, and somehow mixes Afrikadabra, seltriness, and vice rock into one. Ooh,
0: it's, not, it's not as good as it sounds. Uh, I know, you listen to it a few times. Okay.
2: Pretty, it's pretty good. Uh, the best... Uh, and the best oh the best thing is is that so Carlos uh, Vega is the is it has this nice bounce on the on the drums on this song, it's actually Phil Collins on Mandela playing the drums so he's not he's not even singing he's playing the drums and it sounds his perfect
0: Phil Collins '80s In the Air Tonight punch uh, and it's awesome. It's funny because you texted me that song that uh, was gonna be your bone throat just like minutes after I found the al- this album. Um, it was the last shot that Phil had of being involved in the Yacht Rock song, and it totally bummed me out that this song Mandela is so far from the boat, but there's something special about this being the very next song on the album.
2: Yeah, so look it up and hear the last throws of yachtiness for Lee with Sunset Drivers, and then he's off the boat with Mandela right after. It's a nice little tale of 1984 Yacht Rock, and of course, Susudio would come out a year later sort of the sunset of uh,
0: Yacht Rock. Let's rate this one. Get out your pens and pencils, people, because we're not going to calculate. Uh, Wait, I can calculate.
3: 65.
0: Give this one a 65. On the count. I was very close to what I was saying. I'm going to give it a 67. It's a little too modern to be higher on the boat, but it's got some nice elements.
3: Hey, yeah, I'm going to give it a 66. Guys, I can't pull up my calculator okay, that quickly. Just, just give it a number. Uh,
0: 62. Alright, guess what? That averages to around the high 60s. Okay, it's a yacht rock zone. About 65.
3: Yeah, about, about that.
4: There's a girl, she's on my mind. I think about her all the time. <laughs> she's got a name you all
3: know <laughs> I know where this is going. Do you?
0: <laughs> this is Big Big Daddy covering Susudio. Um Thanks Big Daddy. Um, to listen, Susudio.
2: Finally we got Big Daddy on the show. I mean how many episodes have
4: it been?
0: Big Daddy uh, so we all love Susudio, kind of varying okay. degrees, <laughs> varying degrees. Yeah, I like this. I like to listen to Susudio. Oh, it's, a it's a fun song. It's a fun song. It's a good mood. Yeah, I always thought it was fun and light, but I, and I, you know, it's a song you can listen to all day long and not give a shit about shit, you know. But analyzing it for this episode, I find its existence and success to be a very dark reflection of a soulless consumer culture with no morals or empathy. Could we say the same thing about Phil Collins?
2: Uh, I would say um, the song is definitely steeped in cynicism, but cynicism is like four of the five feet of Phil Collins. So yeah, <laughs> this is pretty much him in a nutshell. Um, for most of, most of his songs are him in an angry nutshell, uh, except for maybe Take Me Home, because okay. Phil always minds and he always remembers. So don't ever cross me.
1: I, to me, also, I, the, the most... Like, why are we doing this? To me, the most compelling question about the song has always been, what is he doing? What is he trying to pull off here, and why? Why Susudio? You mean that's m- what we're going to get into today. Like, why
3: this style of song? <laughs> why any why, of Yeah, why? Why yeah, all mm-hmm. the whole package? Why would a balding, chubby, short little man feature his forehead so prominently on an album cover? Because fuck you, that's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: Yeah, because he wants to invite us to look into his mind and figure out why he's doing all this. This, by the way, is the Old Dirty Bastard's cover of Susudio. <laughs> it's pretty much just some raps and then some ladies singing the chorus of Susudio. Uh, <laughs> Uh, at the chorus point um, You know, a song like this It inspires a lot of great artists to take a stab at it <laughs> Big Daddy and Old Pretty bastard. bastard Wow well,
1: listen Runs the gamut Is
3: this, a, this is the first there. time we got
1: a Oh, who's are singing the verse of studio Or the pre-chorus yeah?
0: me She makes me need Lots of different versions of Sudio out here. This one's by uh, a band called uh, I can't say the, see the whole name. Big Band Brass and, and Fun. <laughs> I think the, Big Band Brass and Fun. I think this is kind of a throwaway kind of band, covering a uh, Susudio in a all in my
1: a... favorites done
0: in a Brass and Fun style. <laughs> <laughs> kind of doing a fun brass of fun. How many of these do you have? I got four. There's more. They're all like different styles. I thought we would talk longer. This is like,
1: this is like a New Orleans second line here. Yeah, They're, they're doing the, going on the street. Wait, you thought we would talk longer in a section where the heading is, this segment is going to be
0: briefer than usual. <laughs> or I thought I'd be on the ball enough to like switch the song every time that one of us talked. Oh, okay. But I I, why? Oh, I we see.
2: really want to hear it.
0: And here's the last This one's by Paper Lion. <laughs> Not paper David Lions. Nope. Paper like the like I'm the a, cat lions. So, I'm a rock guy. But listen, we've heard enough uh, Get it? different studios.
3: Oh yeah yeah. Paper rock scissors. Yeah. yeah.
0: We haven't heard the real sous-studio yet, so you guys ready to count count this song down? Sure, why not? Alright. Well, I just want to hear this guy say studio oh. <laughs> Actually listen to this just for just hey. a second. <laughs> he, oh. he found it. Uh how are you guys doing today? Well, okay, uh, doing good. well. How are you? You're really hanging, really doing great. Just hanging in there. I'm yeah. su-
2: su- super. <laughs>
0: okay. Okay. Super duper. Okay.
4: I'm Casey Kasem. Coming up, a song by the most successful singer alive today, Michael McDonald. His voice was quite hoarse. Number ten.
2: <laughs> I heard that now at, when I first, heard, I got a peek that what the what the bumpers were going oh, right. and I, I thought it was going to be all Phil Collins ones.
3: When I, I'm I, just I didn't listen to the playlist when we were researching this, because I figured it was all the same song, so when you started that sort of doo-wop version of Sue Studio, mm-hmm. I thought these were all going to be different versions of
0: somebody like very musically talented, and you thought you were in the middle of one of those naked-in-school-not-having-done-your-homework dreams? No, I thought I would enjoy it. No. Sorry. But this is nice, too. You won't. Okay, so this is... Hey, what's is, going on? This is song number 10, <laughs> It's a studio by Phil Collins. That's right. Oh, good song. Um, so, in the number 10 spot, we have a, an argument that, you know, a word with no meaning is a Rorschach test to, to pop music fans, and it's also a glimpse into Phil Collins' psyche. Sort of an overall thesis for today. Yeah. Um, so let's kick things off by discussing what the heck is a susudio? Um, Phil, ha- Phil has said it's a nonsense word, but there's some other rumors yeah. as well.
3: He also said it was the sound of a drum rhythm. If you ever spent time around a drummer, ask him to sing a drum part, and they'll, be, they'll like hit their chest and say things like, umgak and thick, and susudio. He's saying it's the sound of the drum beat. And Phil is a drummer, so that is how he sings drum parts. Um...
0: I thought... Did this get moved?
1: Yeah, I'd probably
0: move things around in order to make the narrative... Well, who was going to say
2: the thing about the about the woman's
0: name you will okay uh, in an interview i will no, uh,
2: no i know somebody else said anyways in an Nobody interview is a shit oh. with me
0: bitch about the script
2: i, I know i just i'm i was just thrown up it, i so he said that it was a that it is it was a woman's name and it makes the song makes it sound like it's a woman's name mm-hmm. it's not but he mm, says yeah. he constantly told interviewers that it was yeah. a woman's name to get him off his back because he was sick of answering
1: that that uh question that's Why it? doesn't anyone comprehend my
0: incomprehensible nonsense word? But that's a, that's a, that's just a just a taste of the anger that's inside that, that mm-hmm. man. And also, it's now a horse's name because Phil Collins' daughter named her horse Susudio. Yeah. Which is a fun fact. And it, I think it goes into some dark psychosis of the Collins family. <laughs> uh, also in a later
3: video, and I might be stealing JD's fun fact from later. No, I cut it because you're going to give this fun fact right now. All right. See, he did move things around. Um, I think it's only because I look at SonFacts.com before. Uh, anyway, there's uh, the SS Udio, uh, which the band uses as the name of the ship that they're on in the video for Hang In Long Enough. All right. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> wow. Fun fact. We're, we're blazing through these. Now, the popular theory that, well, on some Facts is that it's about a schoolboy crush, but I have a different theory. I think it's about someone trying to convince himself that he wants to have sex with a woman. He's nicknamed her Lady Parts Susudio because it kind of sounds like a baby word for vagina, and he can't bring himself to say the real word. He keeps telling himself to say the word as if to convince himself he's going to have straight sex. She makes him nervous and scared, but if he just says the word, he can convince himself that he's a straight guy that wants to be with a lady and not whatever the hell Phil Collins is actually into. Wait.
2: I thought this was a. I thought we were. This was a dive into Phil Collins' psyche. I guess we're, okay, we're, we're kind
1: We have to dive into the surface We yeah. have to. We have to. We can't dive right into the deep end. We
2: he have, wrote the words, man. I'm just it telling it you it, what they I mean. I think you're right. This is mm-hmm. a rare <laughs>
3: <laughs> 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 Seems pretty clear to me. <laughs> you guys don't understand music. Uh, other other theories about <laughs> this song. Uh, this is supposedly a very direct rip off of Prince's 1999. Collins acknowledged that. He said he was a yeah, huge fan. And was listening to the song on tour um, and the uh, demos even sounded more like 1999 but that was back before one song could sound like another without everybody suing everyone. Sue, sue, suing everyone. Yeah. Come on. Oh, we have to start shit.
0: doing that <laughs> for the rest of the show. Oh, God. Um, wait, so what did, you, what did you run through the internet anagram server here, Dave? Oh, um, it came up with uh, Duos is
3: Us. Could Phil be telling us that he wants to sing this song as a duet? It also brings up I'd Seuss Us, which could be a reference to Phil's culinary passion and his desire to work with someone as a sous chef.
0: Yeah. So, you, so you found out how to mix up the letters and yeah, what it might be. Yeah, I went mean. to me... uh,
3: the internet anagram server or the I Rearrangement servants. So you, for you anagram you're fans. looking
0: for some deep coding. Yeah.
3: But,
2: but he, he said it, was, it could be about his dream as a sous chef. Maybe it's a, a,
0: a recipe for stew. I'd have a stew studio. <laughs> this episode's awesome. So, in conclusion on this point, uh, the most believable explanation for what to studio the word means is that it was a nonsense word that he sang in the demo. It sounded pretty good, so he never bothered changing it. That would lead me to the conclusion that Phil Collins suffers from a deep depression. One of the symptoms are... Of which are good enoughism, where Phil's dark mood hampers his passion for hard work, wanting instead to finish in a half-ass manner, so he can focus on the dull existential ache that has taken up residence in his chest and stomach and feeds on his motivation.
2: Agreed. Yeah, and you just pretty much explained my severe love of Phil Collins
4: and why and why I, love, and why I get him. I love that we had to restart song number ten to get through it all.
0: <laughs>
4: this is Casey Kasem in Hollywood, and now. My special report on Tin Pan Alley. There was beer everywhere, and girls were on the table dancing in the food.
3: Number nine.
4: Number
0: nine is Susudio by Phil Collins. Oh, classic, classic. Good song. So, <clears throat> what a dance beat. Amber. So, in this segment, we're going to argue that a life of genius um, brushed aside into supporting roles... Phil Collins turned into a jaded, cynical artist when he finally got up front. So first, I want to give a shout-out to Wikipedia for the great re- research material. You guys should check this site out sometimes. They kind of have a little bit of information on everything. What is it? Wiki, Wikipedia. Hmm. Dot org, not dot com. Ah, that's why my facts are wrong. I was going to the dot com. Yeah, that's why. Uh, so Phil Collins was born in 1951 in Cheswick, West London, England, to Winifred, a theatrical agent, and Greville, an insurance agent. Is there a more English dad name than Greville? Greville?! Uh Trevor
1: Winifred
0: <laughs> Phil, he was a musical prodigy studied the drums, uh, you know the instrument in the back of the stage and he began his professional career as a child actor playing the artful Dodger in the London stage production of Oliver in the artful Dodger He's a bit of a sidekick, a supporting player. See yes. a pattern forming? He's, He's also a, a... a sociopathic
3: criminal. We'll get into that
0: a little bit more later. <laughs> 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 um,
3: I didn't read the other stuff you wrote. Did anybody go into his child acting career? Not too deeply. Uh, he was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as a little kid, and they had a couple bit roles on British television. He was an extra in a Beatles movie. Would uh, you say Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in a West London accent? Shitty, uh, Chitty Bang Bang It is, it is.
0: Alright, so, did Phil Collins.
3: You just say shitty, shitty gangbang.
0: Of course he just what? said shitty, shitty gangbang. No! Rorschach test much. Jesus. he totally did! It's an
1: accent, man! On, no, he fucking did. It's an accent where I change all the consonants.
0: <laughs> Alright, so, Phil Collins became the drummer of the prog rock band Genesis in 1970 after auditioning in Peter Gabriel's parents' house. And in an ultimate power move, he took a swim in their pool before the audition. Uh, But that didn't stop Peter Gabriel from giving him the job of drummer, putting him in the back. He drummed and did background vocals and a very rare lead for five years until Peter Gabriel left. Phil had to endure singing background vocals for lead singer auditions until somebody finally said, fuck it, let Phil Collins be the singer, I don't give a fuck. And that was the ass-backwards journey into Phil Collins becoming a frontman. And in 1978, Genesis became a pop trio. So I wonder, it, took, it took
1: them a little while to evolve into that. Like, they slowly realized, as as Gabriel was more and more in their rearview mirror, that, oh, wait, we don't have to do that shit anymore.
0: <laughs> it's true. The albums get more and more popular as the post-Gabriel albums um, until the 80s, where they just put other Phil Collins but albums. so did Peter Gabriel's stuff got more and more popular? Yes.
3: Yeah. yeah, maybe that Phil Collins story was the Gen- Genesis of his song about swimming. I swim in a pool, swimming school. Oh, yeah, Whenever I go talk. swimming. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so. Well, was that Peter Gabriel? Yes. Yeah, that's what he's saying. That's the. Oh, Collins. oh I see, I see. Okay. Power move. Uh, <laughs> so while making albums with Genesis, Phil released solo albums in 81 and 82. Face Value and Hello, I Must Be Going, respectfully. On both albums, he was creatively fueled by his troubled marriage, where Genesis had always been kind of strange and heady. These solo albums were in your face, going, hey, it's me, Phil Collins. They also established a pattern of album covers where Phil's big, puffy English head is literally in your face. Look at me. I'm the main guy now, both in Genesis and on my own thing, where there are no other guys but me, Phil Collins.
1: Yeah, and those and those albums were—they were—they were both pretty big hits in the UK. They both made the top ten in America. But at the point where Studio comes out, he's still basically the drummer from Genesis. Like he's not a star in his own right quite yet. He wasn't a reliable pop hit maker yet.
0: Yeah, In the Air Tonight was the only thing resembling a hit on these first two albums, and it wasn't huge. Uh, yeah, not in America. Uh, but <laughs> and like not, he well, had not until much later. He
1: had, when this came out, he had just scored his two biggest American hits to date. Uh, the soundtrack ballot, Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now, which was his first American number one.
3: And then the Philip Bailey duet, Easy Lover. So the He hit, was nominated for Emmys and Oscars for Against All Odds. Well, yeah, He yeah. wouldn't I mean, be nominated for Emmys. He for won Against Grammys. But I, yeah, it started to break him. Like the hit, yeah. the hit pump had been prime. I don't know if he won the Oscar. He was just nominated. But that was like really, hey, look at this take a look at me now look at, mm-hmm. yeah look at the midget in the back he's in the front now so.
1: but yeah people people
0: at this point were ready to accept the idea that Phil Collins could maybe be a big commercial success yeah. and you know Against All Odds submitted him as the ultimate divorce core artist and divorce core artists have something to prove he proved the fuck out of it with this track which rained with, Against All Odds which rained Grammys down on him and became his first number one hit
3: yeah, no, it's yeah. Um,
0: the first, sing- first
3: single, do we already say that? It was first, I think it's it was the, the
1: first, first song on the album, it's the first single from No Jacket Required, yeah. so like, as the lead single, this has to like, this has to break the album. This has to like, make a big enough impression that like, It opens up all the other potential hits on the album. Do do you want to hear the story of why it's called No Jacket Required?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's about him being kind of an angry dick. Oh, great. So when he would go on tour, he would stay at these fancy hotels that they would... And this is... It's not quite a quote, but he basically said... Oh, they'd take my money to have me at their hotel, but if I wanted to go down to the bar and have a have a drink, they always said you have to have a jacket. They made him dress up. So they'd take his money at these fancy hotels, but he couldn't go get a drink because he wasn't
3: wearing a, a jacket. Guy just wanted a well-done steak with some ketchup and they made him put on a coat. He wanted he was just wanted to go to the bar, Dave. After after a long tour. After a long night. So so he's stuck in his hotel room drinking out of the uh, mini bar, which honestly is really more his size. So it's basically it, it's, it's a bar. It's basically <laughs> to him it's just a bar, yeah. <laughs> so basically, it was like,
2: "What? You don't think I'm good enough for your bar?"
0: That's that's why it's called No Jacket Required. Um, so he released the studio and No Jacket in early '85. So studio would go to number one in the U.S. Uh, it's. It was the third in a string of uh, top 12 singles in this country. Oh, oh t- 12, 12 top, top 10, 10 singles, singles in, in this country. In the US. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of a legendary historical run of success. But if Phil Collins had something to prove, Susudio was the proof of the something he had. Put that on a t-shirt, you pieces of shit. So two divorces later, <laughs> stupid modern-day Phil Collins hates No Jacket Required and yes, Susudio because I guess he hates Milk Toast but awesome music. But he told Rolling Stone in 2016, At the time, I wasn't being me. I've grown up a bit now and I much prefer to play songs that are me. Um, I only play a bit part in that one. And Susudio. So now he's making music like this. This is from his last album, uh, this song's called Going Back, and it's a cover of a King and Goffin song, uh, that was performed by Dusty Springfield From... (laughs) So this is an album of 60s pop covers, all of which feel right at home at No Jacket Requ- uh, No Jacket Required uh, Why does he hate it so much? I'll tell you why Uh,
3: like everybody else in the world, he's sick of hearing it? No, it's because he, he, he has a lot of anger,
2: and, he, and most of it's self-hatred, and he hates himself. And so the older you get, the more and more you hate your younger self. Um, because it maybe be, you like to think that you're healing a little bit, and so... It's kind of the opposite of the song Glory Days. Well, sure, he does. yeah, he's not looking back fondly on, on these years. And, and probably this is might be his most angry and bitter... Because this was the one where he was really, he probably didn't want to be such a commercial success, mm-hmm. yet at the same time, he wanted to be the most commercially successful. And so he, this is the extreme, like, self-hatred album. And he did it.
3: <laughs>
2: and he, he fucking nailed it.
4: This is Casey Kasem in Hollywood. Now we're up to the current smash by a group whose horn player can do something that very, very few horn players in the entire world can do.
0: What do we got here at number eight, J.D.? Uh, We got Phil Collins' Susudio. Oh, good song. Um, This this song came out at the summit of the baby boom Malays when children of the 50s and 60s began to get hit by the realization that the world is a terrible place and nothing they do can change for the better. Think
3: about the year 1985 for a minute. Musically, Thriller was finally off the charts and the best year ever of music was now a memory. Born in the U.S.A. has become the first CD press in the United States. Broaches have become the fashionable look for midwest realtors and fifth grade teachers times were becoming less former excuse me times will were give me a minute gonna try it again times were becoming less formal jackets were no longer required and a chubby balding dick can be a superstar <laughs> but also
1: because 1984 was over uh the u.s had not fallen into a totalitarian dictatorship a la george orwell um The Soviet Union had just elected the not-scary reformer Mikhail Mikhail Gorbachev as its leader. Uh, That was the first step in ending the Cold War, thanks to his policies of glasnost, or openness, (laughs) perestroika, or restructuring, and the less often repeated demokratizatia, or democratization. I like your East German pronunciation of these. yeah. Good, yeah,
0: <laughs> also, yeah,
1: in, and because there was this whole new openness to uh, to all things Russian, Yakov Smirnov was a breakout comedy star, so tensions were breaking, and all the land was ready to party in, in Soviet Russia. Studio, sue
0: you. <laughs> um, this is also, ah, this was also peak Reagan. The cynical middle class had just reelected in a landslide, a man who fucked them over for four years. was Pete Reagan. Reagan had a mandate to continue his path to destroying everything great about America. His counterpart, Marjorie Thatcher, in the UK, was doing the same thing to her people with smashing success. The world was clearly, fuck it, this guy looks good behind a podium. It's the same It's the same sentiment that made people go, fuck it. As one note's a studio song, might as well go to number one. <laughs>
2: Also, the USFL, a.k.a. the United States Football League, was honored some tough times, and led by New Jersey general owner Donald Trump, they would vote to move their season to the fall in order to sue the NFL. In order to what, the NFL? Sue-sue the NFL <laughs> over the antitrust laws and force a merger. Uh, they would win the lawsuit, $3, and then go bankrupt after losing a reported $163
0: million. Have you have you heard the uh, the story about the guy who wrote a song called uh, Rainbow in the Day? No. He's Susudio.
4: <laughs>
0: hey. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. The movie Wall Street would come out a year after this. A couple years after this, but that likely means a script was being written around the release of Susudio. Susudio just happens to be the epicenter of, a, of, of the culture of greed and callousness. It's also why it's so loved by yuppie murderer Patrick Bateman in the 80s period piece American Psycho. It's just the perfect musical accompaniment to the era, era of empty, feel-good, immoral society. Beverly Hills Cop was number one movie when this oh, came hey. and would be for would be for months. It was a big hit, number one for a long time. When No Jacket was released in early '85, the year also gave us Police Academy Two, Rambo Two, Back to the Future, Commando, and Rocky Four. That's a big year for Stallone. It really <laughs> was. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Rambo
2: First
3: Blood Part Two. I know. Two. I know. I'm trying to be I'm trying to be punchy. It wasn't yeah. Rambo then. I think
0: it was trying to keep it uh, short. Uh, so <laughs> well, on, you failed. On the charts, the studio hit number one in July, Knocking Heaven by Brian Adams off the charts. Top ten companions included Raspberry Beret, A View to a Kill by Duran Duran, and Everybody Wants to Rule the
4: World by Tears for Fears. Wow. We made it. little picture of the time. Hey, good timing with this the song. This is Casey Kasem in Hollywood, and if you can imagine President Carter intentionally neglecting to brush his teeth before a press conference, then you can imagine this next singer in the countdown deliberately ruining his voice before he records a song. Here's Kenny Loggins. Number seven. <laughs> <laughs> song
0: number seven on our countdown is Studio" by Phil Collins. Um, it's a good song. Yeah, it's a little overrated. So the repetitive yet exciting production choices are indicative of a man trying to jar himself out of a rut, but not quite sure how to do it. So I want to talk about uh, some of our favorite production choices that he made. Talk about the producer, stuff like that. Um, so... As with the rest of the album, this was recorded in Colin's living room shortly after he married his second wife. He was going back to basics to jar himself into stardom. Is that true? He recorded this in his living room? Mm-hmm. Not like a home studio, but... I don't know. I mean, that's what songfacts.com says. Yeah, you know? it's about. The... I don't
1: know what room in the house he had his home studio. No. I guess we'll never know. The Dungeon. Who's the producer on this, Steve? I will talk about the producer on this. Uh, It's co-produced by Phil and his longtime associate Hugh Padgham. Uh, Hugh Padgham started as an engineer, worked with artists like XTC, The Police, Yes, and Peter Gabriel at the dawn of the 80s. Uh, Then he graduated to producer on Phil's solo debut, Face Value, and it was there that he pioneered the gated reverb approach to recording drums which was the template for so much of what's become known as the 80s drum sound. You can easily hear this effect on In the Air Tonight. So
0: is there, this isn't gated reverb, is it? This no, is this a is a drum machine. machine. Okay, we'll talk about that I'm just, I'm that just later. trying to
1: explain who the producer is and why Hugh Padgham is a name. In okay. the Air Tonight was a drum machine, too. So what is gated reverb, though, Steve? What is gated reverb? I'm glad you asked, because I tried to figure it out. Uh, it's reverb, or as scientists like to call it, echoey shit, mm-hmm. pushed through a device called a noise gate gate, which does things like it can cut off certain frequencies outside of a specified range, or it can stop the reverb at a predetermined length of time. So basically, it cuts off that echo very quickly, and it adds power and punch to the drum sound. And also, that's why it has that kind of slightly artificial feel to it, because the drums don't ring out and fade into silence naturally. And I w- that's I w- why people think the 80s drum sound is kind of tinny. We're, uh, we're gonna
2: talk about a lot of the other mm. stuff, on the, and I'm gonna talk about specifically about the drums, but he did, uh, later, but he did put the, the electronic drums, I'm pretty sure he put them
0: through uh, multiple effects to get that, an extra reverb on this song. Um, so here's some random things I like about the song. I love the horns, and there's a good reason for that. Hunter, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, uh-huh.
3: without this, without those horns, the song would be unlistenable.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't be much of a song. And I love the way that, right, that what just happened in the pre-chorus—that sort of desperate. Ah! It's like he's been holding his breath, waiting for the part. It's, a, it's like, a, like that breathy Bono thing. Yeah. It's also a nice, dreamy synth tinkle in the pre-chorus. I don't know, it's really nice. Um, I listen to after he says the studio, the guitar comes in with this rhythmic. Chicka, 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 chicka. I think it means that he's jerking off to studio, if only mentally. It's a nice musical release. Uh, nice synth bass. It's just punching along the punchiest, sassiest bass I've ever heard in my life. Are you talking about that? Whoa, 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 yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hungry bass. It's hungry. Yeah. That
2: sounds like, that's a hungry bass. not farty. That's hungry. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah.
0: eating. It's chomping. Yeah. I feel like it, I think it's
2: trying to
3: clear some phlegm out of
0: its yeah, yeah. synth throat. It's
3: the, uh, the music equivalent of chewing the scenery.
0: Yes. Um, okay, so take a good list of the layers of this song. It's like a it's like a background guy, a guy who spent his life on the back of the stage, freshly divorced and remarried, trying to show off his new toys, his new outfit, his new cars, his new house, his new haircut, his new favorite beer, all jammed together in one overstimulating but ultimately unimpressive display of flash. And that's the studio. I like this breakdown, jam too. It's a good choice. Oh, this is hot, yeah. So to get a, yeah, really, really hear those horns. Yeah. The, the Hungry Bass takes a break. Takes a bite of its sandwich.
3: Now on
4: with the countdown. Hey, what the fuck am I doing? Number six.
0: Number six on our countdown <laughs> is "Studio" by Philip Great Collins. Great choice. Yeah. So fuck it, let's take a break from analyzing Phil Collins' brains and just, just name some people who played on this song. Yeah. Ah, right oh, it's my favorite part. Some names.
2: Cause I love giving credit to people, and so. that's Phil's least favorite part. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's so let's go in order of importance. I'm uh, guitar. You have uh, Daryl S- 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 Sturmer. Sh- Sturmer Sh- should have been Strummer. Uh, he's the closest thing to a yacht rocker we have on this song. He's from uh, Milwaukee, where he played in a band. Uh, called band named after Dave Lyons called, uh, Sweet Bottoms. It's true. I knew those guys. Uh, in 1975, he joined, uh, the band of, uh, French jazz violinist, Jean-Luc Ponty, <laughs> uh, and his career skyrocketed as it would, <laughs> you know, uh, around the time, around that time he worked with, uh, George Duke and toured with, toured with Gino Vanelli. Vin- oh, uh, we those are, him. Those are his Yacht Rock connections. Um. But he also became a tour musician With Genesis playing bass and guitar uh, That would lead him uh, to guitar work On Phil's solo projects Including the collaboration with Phil Bailey On easy, uh, the, yeah. easy Lover Easy Lover And all of ba- Bailey's Chinese Wall albums um, Also coming over from the Chinese Wall Into the Sioux Studio there. where the
4: ah. Phoenix
1: Horns Spell it Steve Oh, is Phoenix, is, in this case, is spelled P H E N I X. There's no O in, yes. in this version of Phoenix. None of that
2: confusing O. Where's it go? I don't know. Uh, they were the horn section for Earth, Wind, and Fire and consisted of leader uh, Don Myrick. Lewis uh, Satterfield Michael Harris and Romley Davis uh, so it sounds like Bailey traded a guitarist for a full horn section what a deal for the Phils you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. uh, the Phoenix horn uh, the Phoenix horns were actually from Chicago that's
0: why they didn't know how to spell Phoenix it yeah. makes sense uh, they, <laughs> it's that tricky O oh. it's like that that, that um, it's like the the Chicago drum corps it, it, who lives in Phoenix and they spell Chicago S-H-I Chicago. Uh, They they seem
2: to have formed while working with the band The Pharaohs, which was Maurice Wright's uh, uh, pre-Earthwind and Fire band. They hooked up with Collins on his first uh, solo album, Face Value. That led to lots of work with Genesis and Collins' solo stuff. Uh, It also led to a lawsuit in 2000 where Collins said they had been paid too much in royalties. From Sirius Hits Live, and and he wanted almost four th- uh, 400000 dollars from them. Instead, of getting about two hundred thousand dollars, I assume it's because his daughter needed a new horse,
3: or because he's a fucking <laughs> dick
2: hunter. Sasudio tatudio. <laughs> uh, so it should it should be noted, uh, Phoenix was arranged by tomtom eighty four, aka Tom Washington. He arranged them a lot. Uh, he arranged the shit out of them. Yeah. Uh, Then you have an insanely talented performer on bass drums keyboards drum machine sequencing and vocals and that would be PC a.k.a. Phil Collins Uh, He's a failed actor from West (laughs) London and started drumming in a band called Hickory who changed their name to flaming youth He then joined a band called Genesis got really bitter uh, and divorce and did solo albums. he then became an unfailed actor and starred in Buster
0: and then returned to his role uh, as failed actor certainly thereafter.
2: Yeah. that's uh, that's everybody on this on the song, Susudio. Wow here we go. I got a wow wow how wow wow wow-wines. Wow, and... What? The what? The Lord. I got a wow wow to you. No I didn't. Lord what? Oh. Praise the Lord speech to this precious precious God. <laughs> I can hear. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This one's for you, Elvis. Okay, what you're hearing uh, right there was, uh, was the, uh, the end of a Miami Vice episode, um, and here's another jaunty tune. With uh, this is life is a rat race. This is coming directly from that Miami Vice episode. Um, it's called the episode's called Phil the Shill, featuring Mr. Collins as Phil Mayhew, the corrupt game show host of Rat Race who, who rigged the game for Emo Phillips, uh, then becomes a drug money thief.
3: Classic Collins. Wait, Emo what? Phillips was in Miami Vice? Yeah. Wait, I just I just realized what? the soundtrack thing we've been doing, in my head I thought it was only movies. This was a movie. Oh, this is the original pilot that was... No.
2: It's Ma'am? from the TV show, but this it, was a movie. Miami Vice was
0: a movie. Uh, yeah, that's this, very
3: confusing. But this no, song you, you, wasn't in the movie.
0: My first one was Twin Peaks, bro. Yeah. Think about it. That was also a movie. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay.
3: Um uh, I'm just blowing my mind all over the place and hey, maybe listen
2: when you when you if if, if it's a real it's a song you really want to play, put it in the show it's a soundtrack for a TV show. It's
0: fine. Alright, right. just, right. just be on Yacht right. Rock. Okay, cool, yeah. man. I just, uh, ah, just God. Glad to
3: finally ah. have something interesting to
2: talk this about. This isn't a very long song. I need to get through this. We're gonna have to like start this over three times. Ah, okay, well this is actually the song The Man with the Horn reworked for the show. The man with the horn uh, was actually the B-side to Susudio in the UK, um, and was originally recorded during 1982's Hello, I Must Be Going Sessions.
0: Yeah, because of that, I had a hard time finding the song. Uh, you can't really find it legitimately because it doesn't really exist. You if mean you life listen- is a rat race? Yeah, life is a rat yeah, race. If it doesn't listen- exist. If you listen to this track, it's a clumsily edited together by a YouTuber, but I think it's kind of awesome. It sums up Phil Collins and the Miami Vice lifestyle very nicely. Chasing easy money, fuck it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shit hit music and snort money, I'm PHIL COLLINS! Um
2: yeah i'll give a brief summary i didn't write any of this down but what happens in the episode so phil's a con man it's his last episode uh switek is on on the on the uh on the game show rat race he knows the elvis question he's a big elvis fan and and he wins he goes through like a double dare thing an adult double dare thing presses the button it doesn't go off emo phillips then presses the button, and it goes off, and he's like, what the fuck, this, this guy, and then he knew the Elvis question, and he's like, I, only I know that stuff. So he had a grudge against him. So at the end, what you hear, Phil gets away, again with the money, because that's what Phil does, he gets away. And Switek money looks at his TV and sees him. He's now become a television evangelist, and he and he says this one's for Elvis, and he shoots shoots the the TV. TV. Sounds like typical Miami drug running. Yeah, Collins is arguably the most Miami Vice artist of his time with five solo songs. And one Genesis song in the series, including one of the greatest scenes in TV history during the pilot. As In the Air Tonight plays and Crockett's world crashes around him, he prepares for what could be his final drug bust. As he speaks to the scene in his Ferrari with Tubbs at his side, he stops at a payphone to call his ex-wife and asks, It was real, wasn't it? Bang! Yeah, the classic Collins drums comes in. Amazing scene. Set the stage for the rest of the series. What are you going to argue with? You don't think Phil Collins is the most Miami voice artist of all time? Jan Hammer. I think he's got one
3: song. But he also composed all the music. And the other stuff. <laughs> was
0: he in it? I'll bet he had a cameo. Oh! oh! that argument was saved by a plug hole. Today's bumpers, they're so good. Sent in by Jeff Selby. At Hoosier underscore Yankee He wrote to me He said Please accept this new batch of bumpers Featuring the majesty of Casey Kasem And hey You know You could hire Jeff Selby To talk with his voice On your things Go to JeffSelbyVoice.com To hear his dang voice And then hire it Hire that
3: voice. So is that him doing Casey Kasem, or is he just taking Casey Kasem clips? Let's just say it's him doing Casey yeah, Kasem. He's so he's great. more hireable. Does it, does All right, a, yeah. Casey Kasem does a great Casey Kasem. Kind of takes away the humor of the bumpers, though. He did it. You know what? I'm being a contrarian. Yeah. I'm, why I'm are you just gonna a, stop? And you know what? I thought your argument was gonna be Ted Nugent.
2: I, I I thought we were gonna have a nice Ted Nugent Phil Collins debate, and yet you said Jan
3: Hammer. Now I'm pissed at Ted. All right. Uh we have a any patriot
0: we, we, oh, we, we got one a lot of, a lot of Patreon nicknames
3: to get through. Yeah, we got one.
2: Alright. Uh this is uh Joe Wise Wisecaver. Wisecaver, not the nickname. Not the nickname. Mm-hmm. Your nickname is Joe Susudio Wisecaver.
4: Hey-o! Hey congratulations, Joe Susudio. Casey counts them down. I wanna be able to look at my kids and say, if you're walking on metal crutches. Don't Stand in a Puddle of Beer. Number five. (laughs) Song number five is Phil Collins' The Studio. Oh,
0: Christ. Um, So, no, he said Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry. I just think Steve disagreed with your placement of the song. So in this segment... It really should have been number four. In this segment, we'll discuss how a self-conscious about his middle-aged man looks, Phil Collins constructs a video to maximize his appeal to a young, fun-loving audience.
1: Yeah, to understand the video, we have to delve into the whole idea of Phil Collins as pop star. Like, when you're a pop star, you need an image, particularly in the era of MTV. Like, MTV pretty much single-handedly killed Christopher Cross's career, and he's a guy who... If we're looking, if we're looking, some some would argue it was the subsequent albums. (laughs) I would not, (laughs) Uh, because because he was all right, and I thought he was going to make it. Um, (laughs) But in terms of if if we're looking at the Patrick Swayze scale of raw sex appeal, Christopher Cross is pretty Phil Collins adjacent on that. Uh, so wait, the, hold on. What's the number? Of, does that what number does that go up to? We'll come up with the algorithm a little bit later. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, but anyway, the music by itself isn't enough. People need to know who you are as an easily digestible character. So how do you take this schlumpy, balding, divorced dude who's thirty-four <laughs> years old, looks like he's going on forty-five, <laughs> spent the seventies drumming for a dorkily complicated prog rock band, sell this guy as a pop star? And remember, this is the first single on an album of mostly solid pop songs. So you've, if you're the marketing department, you've got to nail the presentation on this one because
0: there's a lot of money to be made here. Uh, they, they, so they filmed this video at the Princess Victoria Pub, which is owned by famous rich guy Richard Branson. It's almost as if Phil was trying to subtextually pro- project wealth and success onto himself. So uh, hold your horses, Collins. You know, it's coming. It's coming for you. I don't want to jump on anybody's
2: <laughs> notes. But did, did anybody mark down what the what the restaurant said on the exterior? Oh no, uh, it was
1: like Traditional Food Fair. and it Fair is, was yeah. spelled all in the uh, old, medieval, Yeah, F-A-Y-R-E. the old way. It's, yeah. it's a very very old English way.
3: Yeah. So, that's how Traditional so the was, Food Fair was? There. Exactly. So it opens on the food fair on the pub. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And then people are leaving the pub. We hear what's sound like this discordant jazz jam coming from inside. The cut inside to fill gamely leaping in the air as the music stops doesn't sound like it was good music at all smattering of applause. Phil's wearing a formal suit and tie, despite the title of this album being the informal No Jacket Required, So he, <laughs> he's a hard-working overachiever. There's no jacket required, but he's still going to wear one for you. The Harry Potter sorting hat would totally send him to Hufflepuff House. And then Phil speaks in a fairly thick English accent, he takes a sarcastic little dig at the crowd, like, oh, what an average regular bloke this guy is, one well, under- unassuming underdog. Or it's even kind of charming in a way. And I also, the reason why I brought up the name of that is because
2: you can tell that he has contempt... For for where he is,
1: and that's his yeah, idea. He wants to break the fuck out of this. Yeah, and, and the people who are also there. Yeah. Yeah, because if he's not a drummer for Genesis, this is this is actually gonna be what he's doing with his life. These are the types of assholes who would go to the to the traditional food fair. Yeah, and they're that's all true. overdressed 80s stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in England. Uh,
3: so anyway, then he tells the band, all right, all right, last tune, last tune, let's try studio. He says it to the band. He is establishing dominance. Yes, mm-hmm. he's the band leader. Even though they were just playing fucking jazz, he's the <laughs> band leader. <laughs> yeah. And also, I want to point out, he, Phil
2: Collins pronounces Sudio as Sudio he did it in all of his interviews oh. and you then if that's you just pronounce it the exact same way he does too
1: yeah and in my head before i re-watched the video i heard him doing it in an even thicker act like susudio susudio i heard him doing that that's not actually what he does but it's pretty damn close susudio Anyway, they're just going to try susudio it's just they're just going to try this conventionally structured studio polished prince ripoff as opposed to whatever the fuck they were just playing just see just see how it goes and so, Phil hands it up on the mic a little bit, in the face of almost certain failure, you can tell, when they launch into the song. And so, the black drummer, and that's important because Phil loves R&B, the black drummer and starts... a drum
3: machine. Yeah,
1: he starts into the beat. Yeah, it's this popular 80s music video tactic of depicting live instruments being used to play music that is clearly coming from drum machines or synthesizers or electronics and whatever. And when you watch the band in this video, none of them is ever shown trying to mime the synth bass line. Nobody has ever like shown trying to play. <laughs>
3: and Nobody I wanna, ever does that. I want to add to that Instagram. hunter named Everybody that had anything to do with this song, and there's still twice as many people as that on the stage in this video.
2: Yeah, those like, were his touring musicians, I yeah, believe. One so of them, like, his name is Lee Lee Sclar. Oh, the, yeah. There's and he's he's got he's famous. He's got a big like Jesus. Leland looks, Sklar. Leland Sclar. Yeah. yeah he yeah. also goes by Lee. Yeah. He looks like the uh, one of uh, Chevy Johnson. Ch- Chevy Chase's characters in Fletch. Oh yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah. yeah. Anyways, you'll get it if you know it. Anyway, so they start in on the song. They're like, oh, but wait, what's this? Oh, they're not playing bad jazz shit anymore. And the crowd starts to sit up and take notice. The black horn section joins in. Phil starts to feel it. Crowd's getting a little bit on his side. They're getting into it a little bit. And he's got... He gives him some actual frontman-type energy. He's jumping around, he's clapping on the beat, he's leaning into the mic when he really feels what he's singing, and basically, he's set the bar really, really low and then jumped way the fuck over it. It's like it's like what we like to say around my office about how to manage people's expectations and keep them happy. Under-promise and over-deliver. And as the song ends, we get a freeze frame of Phil making this goofy fucking sitcom face at the camera and winking, like, hey, you didn't think I could do it, and I wasn't so sure either, but thanks to my goofy, unassuming charm, I had this one all alone. That's what I call branding. Yes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely it's it, a,
3: It's a flawless exercise in branding. It's a metaphor for giving the crowd what they want. They want an accessible pop song, just like when they tell you to have proper sex with a vagina. Phil's trying to convince the audience and himself that he's a pop musician that everybody wants him to be. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a little different take on this.
2: Or at least this is this is the first clue that Phil hates almost everything. <laughs> because this you got to understand. So the traditional fair fu- food 80 stereotypes and also English bumpkins mixed in one, they hate jazz, <laughs> they hate the music that he likes, <laughs> they hate his band, so he changes the tune to Susudio and they love this. Mm-hmm. People who he's mocking by the name of the, the thing, and like it's, it's set up as he doesn't like this audience, and they don't like his music, and he panders to, to them. He hates this song, he hates himself for doing it, and he hates the audience. Everything is hatred.
1: Am I wrong? Nope. Okay. I, th- I think there's something to that.
4: See, when you come out of those up-tempo goddamn numbers, man, it's impossible to make those transitions. You know, they do this to me all the time. I don't know what the hell they do it for, but goddamn it, if we can't come out of a slow record, I don't understand it. Number
0: four.
2: I love those old Casey Kasem's.
0: Coming in at number four, Phil Collins, the studio. Oh, yeah. good, good choice. I told you this song should be at number four. I listened to you, Steve. So in this segment, Hunter is going to argue that drum machines do have a soul, but does Phil Collins have access to his own soul anymore? an exploration into the Roland TR-909 and the drumming of Phil Collins and how it possibly is utilized by Phil Collins as a replacement for his lost humanity. Hunter? Well, listen, I'm not going to do any of that, but
2: I am going to talk about the Roland TR-909. (laughs) I'm actually going to get a little more into that on my next bit. Uh, We talked about this many times on the show, but never really got a chance to break it down, and I think Susudio would be the perfect opportunity to bring up something that has long bugged me.
1: The e-drum. And not, y- you didn't come up with a cutesy pronunciation for drum like e p n e? No. How would I do that? <laughs> it's not country.
2: It's not analog. Anyways, <laughs> the e drum. I and mean, what bugs me is that it does have a soul. Listen. The deep bass, the gated snare with just the right amount of reverb, reverb, perfectly timed, perfectly placed, bring a vocal genius from the shackles of the kiss. <laughs> Also, giving the man an opportunity to keep that genius laid back prog snap we know and love intact. He can, he, can, he can set it and forget it. You know what I'm saying? I hear that. Vocal genius. <laughs> the, the machine, and lyrical. The machine responsible on this track, the Roland TR 909, produced from 1983 to 85. It's like its predecessor, the, the probably better known 808. The TR 909 couldn't compete with the realistic sound of the Lindrum, uh, but it featured a strong, thudding bass and a distinctive snapping snare. Very synthetic, but unique. It also had analog samples of cymbals and hi hats, giving it a hybrid sound. Oh. Uh, and, that, and that's what it was known for, for having a hybrid sound. Yeah, duh. Yeah. Uh, Phil Collins was a rare top 40 pop artist to use the 909. It really took off and found a home with house and techno producers. Uh, when you hear that distinct 80s, 90s electronic drum beat in your head, that's the most likely the TR-909. Uh, most, much of the reason uh, for this was because the Lindrum was so mainstream popular amongst the pro musicians, The Roland didn't sell many of the 909s, and they later could be had on the cheap around the town. Uh, time house is being built. Uh, right now, they go for around a cool 4000 on eBay because there are only 10,000 units built. Uh, Thank you for looking up the price of a Roland TR-909 on eBay. You're welcome. I was curious. Uh, it was created by Tadeo uh, K- Kikumoto and was the first mini... Tadeo Ki- Kikumoto? Tadeo Kikumoto? Tadeo? Tadeo! And was the first MIDI-capable drum machine. Uh, Besides uh, your standard drums, toms, and cymbals, it also had hand claps. Yes. Which is important to all forms of music.
3: Well, it is a kind of percussion.
2: Yes. Uh, So fun fact, those drum machines have no soul stickers. Do you guys know those? Oh, Uh mm yeah. Okay, those were a crusade by pianist... Uh, John Wood of L.A. used to stand outside Amoeba around 2004 and sell his crackpot theories. Mostly that modern music is shit and technology was ruining everything. But I'd argue it's a tool like any instrument. It's corporate fat cats that ruin music, not the tools. They allow art to be made and expanded
3: like the song Susudio. Mm Arts, Art. Art. Yeah, we've talked about the, the no soul thing before, and I think I brought it up. Mostly because I don't like techno or EDM or house. But if you really look at it, the drum machines are programmed by really legit drummers. You like take a look at a good chunk of uh, Jeffrey Jeff Beccaro's resume. He's the guy they bring in to program yeah. the e-drum.
2: And he was one of those uh, fancy musicians who only really used the lindrum. Yeah. Um, so let's listen to the beginning. Could you imagine this song? This nonsense dancer being heralded by a standard kit in the open? Or could you imagine a dull analog snare keeping time and no deep kicking and deep kick pulling us into the group? Of course not. Collins always had the right tool for the job. And in this instance, it was the TR-909.
0: OK, so we got Phil Collins. At this time, new wife, new life, new drum machine, new soul. I agree that drum machines do have a soul. And if you've sold your soul to the devil to pay for your divorce, they make a great replacement soul. Only 4K on eBay. Yeah. And it was the Roland
4: something 78 was uh, was in the air tonight. In case you were wrong. This is Casey on American Top 40 in Hollywood. I had a drug and alcohol problem for 15 years. I've become the first woman firefighter in my small hometown, and I'm even running for the school board. Now, on with the countdown.
3: Number three.
4: So I'm going to offer the
0: flip side of Hunter's theory just now. Now, hold on. We don't know the song. Oh, sorry. Sorry. sorry, sorry. This is song number three. This is Uh, Phil Collins. It's a studio. And Steve's going to argue that the fascistic... Hey, I'll just present it. So, I <laughs> wrote the fascistic implications of a drummer using a drum machine while becoming a pop star, a choice fueled by self-hatred and the desire to be what he is not, and also become- I didn't even finish writing it. Well, I insisted on reading it. So I'm
1: just gonna rephrase it in the way- So, okay, so what do we make of a drummer? becoming a frontman and a pop star while abandoning the instrument that was once his livelihood. What does this series of events and decisions tell us about his psyche? My contention is this betrays the fascistic impulses buried deep in Phil Collins' brain. So, let's remember Prager Genesis is very complicated, demanding music. Phil Collins had to be a very good drummer in order to play it. So when he took over as the lead singer, he still played on all the studio albums, but for live concerts, they hired a touring drummer named Chester Thompson. That's the guy you see in the studio video. Uh, So you know, this makes sense. But what happens after the spotlight shines on Phil? I think we alluded to it earlier in the show that, you know, power can change a man, especially one who's never held it before. And here's a quote from Phil's ex-wife, Andrea, the one who inspired the, the quintessential divorce core on his first two albums. She says, drummers don't get much attention. So when he was just doing that, he could be a low key guy. Once he became the singer, he became much more focused on the band in his career. His drive and ambition became his number one priority and his ego started to grow. End quote. So his dark side was starting to come out. He got more and more short-tempered. According to Andrea, he started to commit adultery while out
3: on the road. Yeah, she blamed his short fuse and preference for arguing instead of having a discussion. It's important to talk to your loved ones.
1: Yes. Yeah. And 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 she. Uh, yeah, I think we read the same Daily Mail interview <laughs> for this segment. Um, so they divorced in 1980. Andrea says it was over his adultery. Phil circulated a story about how she had run off with their interior decorator, which was sort of true, they just had like a brief fling. Uh, And when Phil performed his first solo hit in the air tonight on Top of the Pops, he did so with an open can of paint clearly visible
3: in a visual oh. reference to his romantic tragedy.
0: Oh, snap!
3: Yeah, we actually we we did read the same. Article. Yes, we did. I mean, it, it's it's the studio. I'm not going to go past
0: page one on <laughs> Google. Hey, take a look at Yacht Rock. Find out which episode I was shooting while my wife was having an affair with the plumber. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we see there
1: the beginning of a fascist instinct to bend the kernel of truth into self-aggrandizing
0: propaganda in order to win the masses to his side. Oh, you're going there. Yes. I thought you were going to argue that Phil is a citizen of fascism. Using a drum machine is his plea to be ruled over by an unnatural authoritarian, for he is no longer worthy of self-rule.
1: No, I'm going complete opposite. I'm arguing that the seeds of dictatorship are planted in his own mind. Yeah,
2: Yeah, because the drum machine freed him.
1: Okay. Yeah, so anyway genesis continues on as a viable act even without peter gabriel phil starts to get some solo success too with his divorce albums and a glimmer starts to form the same glimmer in the minds of every politician who looks at the social ladders leading to power and says themselves that could that could be me what if that were me what would i have to do to get there this could be all about me and what i want when you're talking about this level of ambition, there's always an element of ego running unchecked, whether it's driven by insecurity or not. This is Nietzsche's will to power in action, and as he pointed out, the pleasure in the exercise of power is often intertwined with the
0: desire for cruelty. It's coming at the perfect time, too, because the rise of Reagan was the trial balloon for Donald Trump's fascism trial balloon that we're experiencing right now. Yes, it all leads to the same, to the same end destination now
1: dictators who ascend to the summits of power like phil collins and donald trump frequently undertake purges of allies they fear will turn against them or hinder their ultimate control and as phil collins ascends to stardom all on his own his oldest ally the vehicle he'd used to begin his journey the trotsky to his stalin had to be destroyed (laughs) annihilated Purged. You're yes. saying everything the drum in a different way. <laughs> That's because I'm a poet, Dave. You don't understand my soul. Ah. If the revolution was to be completed and Phil's power consolidated, the drums had to be rendered 100% unnecessary. If the you, old Phil Collins
0: would be no more. If, if, if Steve ever starts having Siri write, his, write and read his copy for him, look out, he's going to try to take over the show. Yep. He's going to be He's going to be our dictator.
1: Yep, And in Phil's, the old Phil's place Would be a genuine pop star All desires of the ego fulfilled And so when Phil Collins started to play around With a drum machine And improvised a few nonsense syllables of a melody Over his beat He killed his old drummer soul And in that moment He truly became president <laughs> And in <laughs> I think it's, it's
2: these moments where Steve gets this, this power Where he starts to read
1: this, paragraphs that go into his own soul. This is what happens when you guys don't write on the document, and I feel like I have to fill up an empty, empty canvas by painting my masterpiece. <laughs> no,
3: I think you're yeah, telling. Ta- you only you're... filled up your own section. You're speaking. No, he did a lot. Of was, with, he helped no, me out a lot. He nah, did, he's
2: speaking truth to paragraph on this one. Right? Yeah. just paragraph.
1: Just, and just as a quick uh, epilogue, we've, we've touched on this theme already. Uh... After the massive success of No Jacket Required, Phil tried to go back to his acting career and be a movie star. Uh, He starred in the British crime caper film Buster, as uh, I think, Hunter, you mentioned that before, about the notorious Great Train Robbery. Phil's character is an average, regular, everyday, unassuming, yet lovably roguish bloke who commits a crime and runs off to Mexico with a bunch of money. Which is what he did also in Miami Vice. Once again, and in real life. (laughs) Uh, the movie was criticized for trying to make Phil's criminal character too lovable, glossing over the violence inflicted on the train engineer during the robbery. Anyway, this is all a metaphor that all ties everything together, I think. Wait, the movie wasn't criticized for casting Phil Collins in its main role? <laughs> no, oh. it was
0: not. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure it was, but that was that was the
0: controversy. I'm sorry, the controversy when it was released in England. Okay, so this profile of Phil's all coming together now. So, where we are right now, Drum machines may have a soul, but it's a dark and twisted soul bent on consolidating power in the music industry in order to increase efficiency. Phil Collins embraced this tool as a music industry power grab, and once that was achieved, he could feel that the chasm of his self-misgivings had been filled? Maybe? I, listen, the drum machine, He, he
2: this guy has trust, trust issues. That's, he played a lot of instruments that he could do it, and the drum machine was something that he could set to write a song to. It freed him as an artist. Okay. And everything Steve just said was projection. Okay. <laughs> Projected out of Phil Collins' head. Not mine. This is that, that was a dream of him taking over Beyond Yacht Rock. I know. This is what we just heard.
0: <laughs> I know. Like I said, once it becomes automated from Steve's part, look out. He's going to be free to kick our asses and Make Luckily, loose. Steve doesn't embrace I'm gonna, technology.
3: I'm gonna. I'm gonna uh,
2: I just got a. He hasn't hooked up his VCR yet.
1: I'm gonna introduce a left-wing dictatorship, though. I'm not a fascist. Oh, good. There is left-wing fascism. Oh, yeah. No, it's called. It, that's that's communism. It's totalitarianism.
4: Hey, save it for beyond. We'll talk about that later. Governmental systems. <laughs> This is Casey on American Top 40 in Hollywood. Until a generation ago, nearly all of our popular songs were written in one place. Stuttgart, West Germany. Number two. (laughs) (laughs) Number two. Just missing number one, Phil Collins, the
0: studio. Uh, Just short. I'm going to argue that Phil Collins in his personal (laughs) desire to change. I'm sorry. What do you want to bet J.D. put All I Want for Christmas is You at number one? No, no one. I'll bet you a million dollars that I did not. Agree. <laughs> All right. So, Phil Collins and his personal desire to change indicated his inability to, to do so by creating a hero in the protagonist studio who does not change and never crosses the initial adventure threshold. So back in the O'Sherry episode, I was able to break the music and lyrics down to that song to present a story that O'Sherry tells. The song has a rich human story with characters who change from beginning to end, hitting many of the marks of a hero's journey. This song, however, has none of that. We have a protagonist who's thinking about a girl he likes. He stands there thinking about her. There's a girl that's been on my mind all the time. Now, she don't even know my name, but I think she likes me just the same. So what does Fantasy Phil do about it? He thinks about what ifs. If she called me, I'd be there. I'd come running anywhere. She's all I need all my life. Okay, awesome. So what are you gonna do about it? feel so good if I could say the word Susudio. Okay, great. Great. Okay, great. So you know what you would (laughs) you know what would feel good if you say the word not talk to the girl. It's not not save the world though. Susudio is a code word for inaction. Susudio is like a video game. Saying it gives Phil hits of serotonin giving him satisfaction for make-believe or satisfaction from make-believe when he desires the real-life satisfaction of boning this lady that he likes. The lyric, Oh, I know that I'm too young. My love has just begun. Oh, give me a chance. Give me a sign. I'll show her any time. It's more what-ifs, excuses, and sitting back and waiting. And he's still saying Susudio for no reason, giving himself easy pleasure instead of taking action. Susudio could be a, a drug habit, or it could be masturbation. He sings next, I've got to have her, have her now, I've got to get closer, but I don't know how, she makes me nervous, she makes me scared, but I feel so good if I just say the word Susudio, just say the word Susudio. So, Susudio, he knows the problem, Good he's a nervous, scared fellow, but once again, he's just saying Susudio and retreating back to his corner, repeating Susudio over and over again like a weirdo. And this is a wonderful first act. It's perfect. Everything's laid out. We can see how taking action on his desires in the face of his fears might lead to an interesting story. But he never takes it there. This isn't all bad. Because now I know how to give a note in a story with a protagonist who does not change. So say, Steve, you wrote a story about a guy who lived in a house and he stayed in his house and read books. You know, he gave me that script. This is a good script. (laughs) It's a thinker. I would say, uh... Steve, this protagonist, he just says the studio. That's all he does. He never talks to the girl. He just says the studio. Yep. So the music really goes nowhere either. It's just like one even tone throughout. There's no peaks or valleys. Just four minutes and 23 seconds of hard blast. Yeah. That's Hunter's term. Yeah. 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 So. In conclusion, like this protagonist, I get the feeling Phil Collins has never developed the ability to change. Sure, he does it in superficial ways, drum machines, you know, whatever, divorces. But modern production techniques, flash and pomp are no replacement for the kind of diving headfirst into a scary situation necessary to come out stronger. In real life, the word studio is a heroin-like drug that temporarily feels good, but ultimately fails to truly shake Phil Collins from his lifelong anhedonia.
2: It's a tragedy.
4: It's time now for the most popular song in the nation this week.
3: On our way to
4: number one. It was by a man David Lee Roth calls, quote, one of the first rock and rollers. A man named David Lee Roth.
2: Number one. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Oh, song number one. Oh, I didn't write it down on the document. Do you know
0: what it is? No. Check um, your playlist. Let me check my playlist. Check your playlist. It's a studio by Phil Collins. Oh!
1: Oh, wait. You've had this on uh, Shuffle the entire time. Uh All right, I got another theory, you guys. Uh, We've heard my theory Phil Collins is a fascist. But what if there's a completely different, or maybe slightly overlapping one? I think that no jacket required is actually a concept album About how Phil Collins' marriage was destroyed by one thing and one thing only. His wife's refusal to say his silly made-up words to studio. And I'm gonna offer, I've got a lot of evidence written down. I'm not gonna hit I'm Dave, stop miming shit at me. I'm not gonna read the whole fucking thing. This'll no, read the whole fucking thing. This'll teach you to go to Vegas the weekend before we record a podcast. There's ten paragraphs. No, read the whole fucking thing. Read the whole thing, Steve. Read the whole fucking thing. All right. I thought this theory was going to be... Don't ever tell me I don't do enough work on the podcast, motherfucker. All right. We know that Phil Collins' first two albums are all about his divorce. And with no jacket required the happy pop music, he seemingly has moved past this. But we haven't really explored the true causes of the divorce, and this is where they start to come out. Susudio is about the infatuation of courtship. And he comes up with a silly word to describe it. I feel so good if I just say the word. It helps him get over feeling nervous and scared around it, just like J.D. would say. But he thinks it will help her, too. At the end of the song, he keeps ordering her like the fascist dictator he is. (laughs) Just say the word, oh. Just say the word, oh. But she won't. She won't say the word that would solve all their problems and make them both feel good. And this ends up destroying their relationship. Now, you keep listening to the album. Next song on the album is Only You Know and I Know. It's clear he's still obsessing right from the first line about how his wife won't say Susudio. The first, one, We know you really only want to hear the things we like to say. See, she doesn't like to say Susudio. <laughs> she's going to say something else. But if I said to you, please don't do it, you do it anyway. See, she's rubbing it in his face that she won't say the word oh. And the chorus, because only you know and I know the things we mean to say, he wants to say the word because he knows what it means. There's a huge split with what she wants to say. So there's a vast gulf of unknowability between the two of them. Now the third song, Long, Long Way to Go, starts with the line, while I sit here trying to think of things to say, such as Susudio. Or maybe something other than Susudio. Or maybe something, yeah, maybe he's trying anything. But he's trying to make up more words at least. And while that's happening, quote, someone lies bleeding in a field somewhere, so it would seem it would seem we've still got a long, long way to go, because I got a lot more paragraphs here, Dave. And the chorus goes. What? I heard my name. The chorus goes. Turn it off if you want to. Switch it off. It will go away. See, she's the one pulling the plug on the relationship through her refusal to just fucking say to the studio, "This is the moment it dies." Now on to song number four. I don't want to know. Here we get the shocking revelation that his wife did give in and say the words to Susudio, but it was too little, too late. It's not enough to rebuild Phil's shattered trust in her, that he can show her the most intimate parts of his soul without having her reject them. Uh, the lines are, uh, it's over. Oh, yes, it's all over, and it's been a long time coming. Some say it's too long. She said it, and now she'll regret <laughs> it. But if she'd ask anyone, I know they'll tell her to her face that it's too late. Now, on One More Night, next song, Phil starts to reconsider whether his stubborn pride played an equal part in ruining everything. Now he's the one asking her for another chance, leaving the door open to rekindle things. I mean, after all, she did end up saying the word in the end, didn't she? But she doesn't seem to come back. All right. So uh, obviously, side one, this is pretty clear. Gets a little tricky now on side two with Don't Lose My Number. The metaphor gets a little tangled. You're going to have to restart uh, song number one here. So, Oh, wait, sorry. That was number six. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, Okay, yeah, all right, all right. Dumb joke. So, Don't Lose My Number. It welcome. It's about a guy who seems to have been accused of a crime and has to go on the run. Where have we heard this before? Uh, Phil's sympathies clearly lie with the accused criminal, once again. For whatever reason, he wants this guy, Billy, to call him. Well, who is Billy, and what did he do? What is his connection to Phil Collins? I think I have the answer. Billy is the guy that Phil Collins hired to trick his (laughs) wife into saying the words to studio on tape. See, after she didn't come back to him on One More Night... Phil's dark obsessions consumed him, he could only fixate on her saying the fucking word. Like, maybe if he had a recording of it, he could jerk off to it or something. But someone caught on to the plot. Billy had the vamoose, because you can't record people against their will. Phil feels guilty about ruining Billy's life. He knows a guy who could probably get the charges dropped, but Billy is completely over this shit. He's like, I'm never coming back. It's Phil is a total freak show at this point. All right, so, mystery solved. Phil finds physical solace in the arms of another woman on Song 7, Who Said I Would, bemoans his breakup again on Song 8, Doesn't Anybody Stay Together Anymore, then asserts his fascist will to power on Inside Out, with lines like, I won't lose sight of all the things I'm looking for, they're coming to me and I'm taking what's mine. And what he wants is any number of women who will just say Susudio for him once he
0: becomes a pop star. So if my theory holds that saying Susudio is a heroin-like drug, this sounds like an album about Phil Collins trying to find a woman to be a junkie with him.
1: Yeah, the studio is like what Hitchcock referred to as the McGuffin MacGuffin. thing everybody's after. I had something to add. Boom. An, an echo to what Steve said. But Steve now, said. <laughs> But, all right, the last two songs are going to blow your mind. So, on song 10, Take Me Home, it sounds like Phil is worn down. I'm an ordinary man, he sings, even though he's established on the previous song that he will no longer be that. And then once the narrator arrives at that home on song 11, We Said Hello, Goodbye, we have a cryptic resolution. He's moved in with someone new. We said the lines are we said goodbye to a dear old friend and we packed our bags and left feeling sad We said hello as we turned the key a new roof over our heads Is this Phil getting back together with his ex-wife? Probably not because he sings turn your head and don't look back set your sails for a new horizon So who is this person? Is it a new partner? Not the gal from who said I would most likely No the clues are in the second verse well, it really don't matter much where you where you are cuz home is in your heart. It's a feeling that you wake with one day. Some people keep running all their life and still find they haven't gone too far. They don't see it's the feeling inside. You know who this is? It's fucking Billy! He came back! He didn't lose Phil's number! He's tired of being on the run! The narrative perspective secretly shifted in song 10, Take Me Home. It's secretly sung from Billy's point of view, because Phil's story arc pretty much wrapped up on song 9, where he decides to become a powerful pop star. So Billy has moved in with Phil, now they're roommates, Billy's taking care of his place while he's out on tour, Phil's sleazy lawyer got the charges dropped after all, and scene. Woo! How?
2: Hunter, what didn't make the list? Um, hold on, I gotta flip a few pages because I was calling wrong. Just oh, you know what, I would have liked to have heard a marginal uh, marginal parody of Susudio set to the name of Ricky Rub- Rubio, the point guard for... Uh, ah! What's this? Uh, what a coincidence! He's the point guard for the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. And if you want, to... did he say there's a? All oh. Rick, Rick
1: Rubio. So, so
2: if you want to find this, it's on YouTube. Just look up Susudio and Ricky Rubio. Is he singing it himself? I have no idea. I don't know who this is. Just a, fella. Just a fella. Just a guy that I,
3: it came up on my YouTube and I clicked it and I was like, wow. When I was a kid in Cleveland, uh, somebody rewrote Louie Louie to uh, Bernie Bernie to uh, celebrate Bernie Kozar. Very, very reminiscent of this.
0: This is all. This is, this is a Susunio, but they say Rick, Rick Rubio instead. You don't really rewrite it very much. No. Um, well, so that's it's not it's not like very rewriting the Bible. It it's I obviously said, literal I said, and perfect I, how it is. I said marginal parody. <laughs> Uh, So, what makes Phil Collins tick? I think I figured him out. So I think Phil Collins is a self-conscious guy, never without something to prove, yet unable to do the real work to achieve it. So he turns to cheap thrills like super catchy pop songs and words that mean nothing but are fun to say, like Susudio, to help fill his unmanageable personal life and empty soul. There's two stories I really know about Phil Collins
3: without looking them up. One is that he was the only artist to play, what was it, Live Aid? Yes. Where he did the London and then flew to wherever the hell it was to do the second leg, but was like really like, hey, I was in London this morning. Just like, mm. look at me. I'm here. I'm doing both of them. I'm more important than all these other people. And then the other one I know about him is he uh, just reshot all of his album covers, just put his face on him again. It
0: was his old face. It's fascinating. I thought that was cool. It's though. fascinating, yeah. but it reeks of ego. Check out. Check him out. I don't know if we to this song I
3: anymore. <laughs> I don't know if it reeks of ego. I think it reeks
2: of like sadness, fascism.
3: Okay. No, I think there's a lot of ego in fascism. Oh, again, definitely. Again, I think we're, we're all personality. Pro- I think
2: we've all been projecting on this song, and I think that's the really fascinating thing about Susudio. Mm-hmm. Is that it is it, a Rorschach test? It, it's a mirror up to your own soul. Mm-hmm. So I think you can listen to this. Uh, yeah. I
0: guess I'm just a bored guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, next next episode, Moonshots 2. Just kidding. I don't know what we're doing. Oh,
3: oh, that's what doing. <laughs> oh God, thank I, God. I'm super excited for that. Oh, oh, yeah?
0: Maybe I'll put it together. I don't really want to, though. Okay, so... <laughs> Find this week's the studio playlist by following J.D. Riznar on Spotify. Go to YachtRock.com, buy t-shirts, check out the Yatsky Scale spreadsheet, and, and read the captain's blog. Send questions via Twitter at YachtRock. Follow J.D. at J.D. Riznar. Follow Hollywood Steve at Hollywood Steve H. Follow David, David underscore B underscore lines. Follow Hunter at Hunter Stare, Like YachtRock on Facebook. Follow Beyond YachtRock on Instagram. Rate and review us on iTunes. Your reviews help us pick up heat, so please take the time today to write a review. Thanks to... Thanks to... Oh, I f- didn't put his name like in Jeff uh, Jeff Selby Thanks to yeah. Jeff Selby For sending in the bumpers Themes by Rob Crow Mark Rivers Recorded today by Justin Brousseau Thank you to the entire Fair Audio family Matt Brousseau Justin Oh cause I looked at the word Dustin underneath And I thought uh, Matt's name was Justin
3: That's okay I confuse words all the time Susudio
0: Check out other Fair Audio podcasts Alright Lost tune Lost tune uh, Let's try Susudio No